starts now. Welcome to Wednesday night. Great to have you here uh, to watch the show. This has been a week that um, I have had some contemplation about uh, time. Um, and that is because time doesn't maybe always heal all wounds. We're in the true crime business and you're clearly a fan. I think that's why you're here tonight. And so you probably have a long memory of 15 years because Kaylee Anthony's body was found 15 years ago this week. And 15 years for some people is a really long time. Uh, 15 years for her uh, grandparents is like yesterday. Now look at that face. They will never see her at 18 because Kaylee Anthony would be 18 years old today. Um, it's a time when you reflect back on what that 15 years has done for everybody involved. And for her mother, Casey, uh, we have some news from a close confidant of hers, her attorney. I asked him the question, is Casey happy after all of this time and contemplation with whatever it is she knows? The answer uh, was shockingly, uh, well, you know, I'm just going to let you wait and see because I'm not sure I can describe the answer I got. Uh, but I do want to tell you this. A couple of things that Cheney Mason told me really upset me. I'm a big fan of defense attorneys. I always will be. It is the American way. It is in our Constitution. We all, every single one of us, deserves the best defense that can possibly be mounted. Lest you find yourself in that position, you want that. But when Cheney became a defense attorney for Casey, who was accused of murdering her own two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Cheney Mason found that the mob out there decided to deliver death threats to his own grandchildren, same age. Let's just think about that for a minute. I'm going to ask him about it in a minute. Also, I have a question for you. It's one of those uh, John Quinones things, like what would you do? We often um, think about how awful it would be if someone did something to someone that we love, Right? I don't know about you, but I think about it a lot. Um, I always wonder what would I do? And then uh, if you add to that equation that someone does something to your mom, does the metric change for you? Your mom, your kids, right? So I'm going to take you to Idaho. God, so much happens in Idaho. Um, I'm going to take you to Idaho tonight where a man is... Uh, is accused of killing the man who killed his mom. He got to the guy before the police did. So the jury's going to have to decide, right? And I want you to be that 13th juror tonight. What would you do facing the man who went after his mom's killer? I've always heard that expression, just leave me in a room for five minutes alone with him, right? That's what we hear all the time. So would you convict? Okay, so that's coming up. And then also, the plot has thickened again in the story of the Marvel Comics star, uh, Jonathan Majors. So he's like, we always say in like a, um, in a domestic assault case, there's a lot of he said, she said, Right? 
But since we're talking about big screen and, and drama, there is a third uh, character that has entered this story, and it's called Video. And it entered stage left today with a bang. Up until now, a lot of people felt pretty convinced that Jonathan Majors wasn't worthy of being this, uh, this Marvel star. And he's already had a lot of his life like ripped out from under him because of this case. And frankly, I thought it looked pretty ugly for, for Majors. Some of the text messages and stuff that went on between him and his now ex-girlfriend. But um, I have this question for you. This is the ex-girlfriend uh, chasing him. And there's lots and lots of this video. This went on for blocks. She is chasing him. Right after what we're uh, being told in the allegations is him attacking her. So the question I have, and I think the jury's going to have, is if you are supposedly the aggressor, how does video of you being chased by the so-called defendant play into your decision-making. So many, like, ethical scenarios I'm going to play out for you tonight. But let's start here. It's, it's always like, the way I've seen it in my career, my career is so long, it's like 36 years so far in television news. But the way I've always figured it, it's right around the 15-year mark that people start asking that question. Where are they now? Like, whatever happened to Michael Vick? Uh, what about Suge Knight? Where's he now, you know? How about that George Zimmerman, Trayvon Martin case? Where's he now? And how about Casey Anthony? Uh, because after a famous criminal trial, the defendant either fades into the halls and walls of the penitentiary or the defendant fades into society if that defendant gets released. And it was 15 years ago that Casey Anthony became an inmate accused of murder and then became a free woman who was left to start life over again. 15 years ago this week, her two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Kaylee Marie, was discovered dead in the woods by her house. And despite Casey's acquittal in what I know we can all agree was a sensational murder case, the mystery surrounding how Kaylee died has never gone away. But Casey did. Casey really did. Like, she went into hiding, and she's, like, barely emerged all these years. She does have a couple of friends, one of whom is a guest of mine tonight. He is a close confidant who answers one of the more critical questions for a woman who was dubbed the most hated mom in America. I'm going to get to that in just a moment. But all this week, I've been reconnecting with many of the key players in the investigation and in the trial and in the aftermath, and they're all sharing behind-the-scenes details that we have actually not heard before, uh, just like Casey's friend and loyal attorney, Cheney Mason. Now, their relationship is a heck of a lot deeper than attorney-client because he says he really treated her as a daughter. And she even stayed for many weeks uh, at his home with his family after the trial, trying to stay under the radar. They are still regularly in touch, usually during the holidays. And as for that very critical question about the most hated mom in America, I asked him, is Casey happy? Here's part two of my interview with Casey Anthony's attorney and friend, Cheney Mason. Cheney Mason, it is hard to believe that it has been uh, 15 years. When you look back on these 15 years, how has, how has life changed for you as Casey Anthony's attorney? Oh, that's a really a tough question. Uh, I have tried uh, six 
murder cases since that. So those that have me busy, and uh, very unfortunately, uh, I recently became a widower. So that has changed a lot of things. I stay in touch with Casey, that's, and she's doing fine. And that's the profound issue I wanted to touch on. When, and I'm so sorry to hear that you've become a widower. My deepest condolences to you. I remember you telling me that you had become very close to Casey during the trial process. She even lived with you uh, for a time as well. Um, and I remember you even mentioning she was like a daughter. So you do keep in touch, and she continues to be like family? Well, you know, kind of, yeah, I guess who's asking and who's watching. I mean, she did stay uh, here in my house for a couple of weeks. Uh, uh, of course, me and my wife and, and her then mother uh, helped take care of KC. I fortunately have a house large enough, and so didn't see her too much. But uh, she was here uh, after being released from everything and hiding from... Uh, uh, snoopers and nosy people and helicopters and whatever. The Messenger publication uh, correspondent Steve Helling said that um, a friend of the Anthony's told him recently that Casey does not commemorate um, these milestone days. Um, and, the, and the quote is, nothing special will happen. It will be a regular day. When you speak with her, how does she process um, these these terrible days, the, the day that um, Kaylee was found or the day that she went missing, any of those days, how does she mark those days um, to your knowledge? I, I don't know that. Uh, first of all, when Casey, uh, when Kaylee was found, I was just a citizen uh, in the public domain here reading a newspaper, seeing television. I didn't know her, I hadn't met her, hadn't been uh, requested to join the team. So I don't know about that. After I got in the case, of course, it's a different story. And since then, uh, I don't recall that we have ever had any conversation uh, memorializing any of these significant dates. Uh, we exchange uh, pleasantries uh, on holidays, you know, on Thanksgiving and on Christmas and you know, Easter, things like that. Uh, uh, she communicates uh, with me and uh, with the rest of the defense teams, as far as I know, at least with Liz Fryer and, and uh, Dorothy Clay Sims, I know we have communications like that, but I don't remember ever any discussion talking about or memorializing the date of finding. I can tell you that the date that this, this uh, child's body was found by total coincidence, I was in the Channel 2 NBC newsroom. They're meeting with a reporter of something totally unrelated. And while we were there talking, the sheriff, then Barry, came from the other side of the room uh, with his aides and making a lot of noise, a grand interest, uh, entrance, uh, causing attention to himself and, and with a hand twirling around his head saying they found this child and she was her head was totally entombed in duct tape. And of course that started a fire. Well it was a lie to begin with. But he didn't know probably it was a lie. He was he was told 
you know, somebody said something about some tape and somebody else said something else and interpreted by the time I got to the sheriff and he's in the courtroom, he's creating this, this uh, image that never existed. Cheney, why do you think after all is said and done, I know that you um, feel very strongly about Casey's innocence, um, but why do you think that the rest of the world calls her the, the world's most hated mother and the world's world? Like, why do you think so many, that the prevailing majority believes that she's guilty? I can't explain why so many people from the beginning uh, hated her. And the same number of people, and for a long time, hated me and hated the other lawyers on the team and, and threatened us. I had armed protection as well. And uh, I can tell you that there were numerous uh, threats and intimidations by, by cowards. And uh, I'm just gonna stay with what I know. I've been trying murder cases for 52 years. This one we tried. The jury got a verdict in a fairly short period of time given the length of the trial. I'm, I'm so sorry that, that. that you, so sorry you and your family, your, your, your wife, your, your children, your grandchildren uh, were threatened by the, by the mob. There's just nothing more obscene than people going after defense attorneys who are literally um, doing what this country uh, was founded upon, the fair you know, execution of jurisprudence. So my, my apologies to you that, you that you went through that. Can I ask you, is Casey a happy person? Oh, boy. You know, I don't know how to answer that because that would inherently include different definitions and periods of time and breadth and so forth. Uh, I have seen her socially on a few occasions. Uh, well, not the least of which, she came to my wife's funeral. And I've not seen her being, you know, real happy and excited and bouncing around any such thing. Very solid, very straightforward. I, I can just say this. I've never seen her be excited and happy about things. And I suspect the loss of her child, like so many other losses, never go away. And uh, I also know when people can believe or not believe, it, it chooses, they won't. Everybody has that right. I spent a great deal of time uh, with Casey in jail and in interviews and so forth and had the defense team here in my home in this very room where I'm being filmed right now is where we had uh, research and strategy sessions uh, you know, every, few, every couple of weeks, I guess. And going through all this process, this whole business, I can just say that I don't believe that Casey really accepted, fully internalized the loss of her daughter until we were in trial when the expert we had towards the end of the trial talked about the grieving process and she broke down and she sat next to me. I've told people that before and all the time spent, that's when I know that it, in my opinion, that's the first time she really fully internalized her acceptance of this loss. And I spent a lot of time on this case for, for doing this. I mean, you, you know, people know that I spent, uh, you know, a couple of thousand hours in this case. It cost me over a million dollars in time and money I paid for the, all the preparations and travel and experts and so forth. Um, 
I don't believe that Casey fully knew what happened. I'm old enough now. I don't need to care about anything a whole lot. Uh, I do not believe she killed her daughter. I know she has some serious psychological breakdowns. I know that she she uh, lied about some things, uh, about credit card use and so forth. I got it. But killing the daughter is not something that Casey Anthony did, in my opinion. And as you know, I'm you know, 52 years of trying cases, and I'm 80 years old. I'm, I'm not some naive kid on the street. My thanks to Cheney Mason for that interview. And you should know he just turned 80 years old uh, just yesterday. Um, says he's retired from practicing. Other key players from the Casey Anthony murder case are going to join me this week with more exclusive revelations, like tomorrow. The man who presided over the case, Judge Belvin Perry, he's going to explain why a spectacle like the Casey Anthony trial could not happen today. And then Gerardo Bloise, the CSI technician who was on this case, he's the one who famously like, captured in a canister the smell of decomposition that they found in the trunk of Casey's car. Imagine that. They captured the smell and brought it to the courtroom. Uh, but next... We have this other story for you, Jonathan Majors, known for epic soliloquies on the big screen, but he had no interest in playing a part in his own domestic assault trial because he decided he would not take the stand. The truth is another witness did that for him, and a hell of a witness at that. Damning video showing the victim in the case chasing after the Marvel star. After the break, it is showtime, and I guarantee that this is a chase that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Next. Not see this coming, but uh, there was a heck of a plot twist today um, in the trial of a movie star named Jonathan Majors. He is the larger-than-life actor who plays that guy. Kang the Conqueror in the Marvel movies. Uh, but he did not have the superhero strength or the confidence to walk to the front of the courtroom and get up on that stand and take his chances, testifying and defending himself. But maybe it's because uh, this day had some serious movie-quality drama to it. And let me explain. Uh, today, the judge released a trove of video evidence that the jury was able to actually take in last week. And it's the same jury that's going to decide if he committed a misdemeanor assault during a fight back in March with his then-girlfriend, Grace Jabari. The most critical video shows the aftermath of the actual fight that uh, happened in the, in the couple's black chauffeured SUV. Um, so this is apparently where the, the girlfriend accidentally gets wind and sees a text that uh, Majors got from another woman. It's never good. Uh, allegedly, she grabs Majors' phone, angry, and then he allegedly broke her finger trying to get the phone back, and then they both got out of the car and they scuffled. And that's where Majors appears to shove Jabari back inside, allegedly causing the, um, the head injury. So we're seeing the video here for the first time. But then look at this. Then he runs off, takes off, runs away. And in an unexpected twist, the girlfriend follows him. Not just a little, like a lot. She's pulling on his arm. She's chasing him down several different streets. She's even like chasing him out in front of traffic and oncoming traffic. And 
It just goes for blocks and blocks. Majors, the star, says he stayed at a hotel that night while instead his girlfriend met a group of strangers out on the street and went to a nightclub. And then the next morning, the actor says that uh, he had to call 911 because he suspected that his girlfriend overdosed, maybe a suicide, he wasn't sure. He says he found his girlfriend passed out in his uh, closet of his apartment. Have a listen. New York City, now on the need police fire medical. Hey, how are you? Is it medical? Attempted, no, attempted from, suicide, I think. What is the location? Uh, 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 what happened exactly, do you know? No, I don't know. Um, uh, but she's unconscious. Okay. Um, she's naked from the um, uh, bottom down. Uh, she has a sweatshirt on. Uh, she's my ex-partner. Um, right. Broke up. I came back. She, she sent me text messages uh, insinuating this much. Um, um, I stayed in a hotel last night. I came home this morning. Um, I banged on the door. I've been at the apartment for about 40 minutes now. Right. I banged at the door. Um, I couldn't get in. Um, I finally went downstairs and asked um, the doorman to help us. And um, uh, they let me in via the, the handyman. The police body cam footage was also released today showing Majors leading the officers up to his apartment unit where uh, that ex-partner got together back again that night. Um, there she is right there. Uh, was still semi-conscious slash unconscious. The photos of his girlfriend's injuries were also part of the big evidence dump that we got. But a doctor uh, who testified for the defense said that the injuries didn't look that serious um, you can see for yourself what they look like. I think that's, I think that's serious, uh, especially if it's someone you love. But if convicted of all of this, Jonathan Majors could face up to a year in jail. Here's the rub, though. The damage to his career could be a lot longer than a year. It could last forever. I want to bring in Mark Garagos. He's a criminal defense attorney, co-host of the Reasonable Doubt podcast with Adam Carolla. He's also defended a celebrity or two, so he knows a lot about not only the law, but then the not law, the stuff that happens uh, for, for the celebrities in, you know, the, the court of public opinion. First, I want to ask you about the chase, Mark, because I was astounded seeing the girlfriend chasing after majors for blocks and blocks and blocks. I mean, it just went on and on and on and on. What does the chase say to you? It says to me that, and I know you were tongue-in-cheek in your intro about him not having the superhuman courage to take the stand, but that, that tape tells you I would have tackled my client if he tried to get on the stand after I got that tape in. That tape tells you everything you need to know. And you couple that with the fact that she, if she was so injured, she's going to a nightclub, she's getting foobarred, and then you find her in the closet half naked the next day. Uh, I, I can't imagine that this is not reasonable doubt. So if I'm a prosecutor, can't I say, and isn't it a wise prosecution um, strategy to say you can be drunk and still be assaulted? You can be um, assaulted and still love the man who assaulted you and chase after him. Like, wouldn't these be the strategies that would be employed? And <laughs> how effective are they for jurors well, in the courtroom? I, I will tell you, yes, you could be drunk and, uh, and that can uh, eliminate consent. However, you saw her running. 
Uh, she was not stumbling. She wasn't, you know, wobbling or tripping or anything else. She was running. She was chasing. He was not doing anything except trying to get away. That's all he was trying to do. He was trying to put her in the car. I mean, they, remember, reasonable doubt is the definition in a criminal case. Are there two reasonable interpretations? One points to guilt, one points to innocence. If one points to innocence and it's reasonable, doesn't have to be as reasonable, you must acquit. That is, I can't imagine a better example of reasonable doubt than that tape of her running after him after he tries to put her in the car and he tries to get away. So let me ask you this. I found that to be very powerful as well. Absent the stuff that I saw earlier this week, which I thought was game over uh, for Jonathan Majors, and that is old text messages that should never have seen the light of day in this trial, but for his defense attorney probing and, and, and asking questions of the uh, alleged victim here that opened the door. Um, and it's another incident in which she's texting with him saying, you know, I got a headache. I really need to go to the doctor. And he's saying, and I'm paraphrasing here, but you, you know, you shouldn't do that because, you know, this couldn't be a good thing. And she says, well, why would I, you know, why would I ever want anything that would pull us apart? I, I can, I can tell them anything. You know, why would I tell them anything if I want to stay with you is basically what she said. Um, and that sure does sound like a domestic violence victim saying, I've got injuries and I get it. If I tell the cops, you'll get in trouble and I don't want that to happen. And I think you'll see or you, you should see that the defense lawyer is going to argue that, OK, that can be interpreted in a way that is inculpatory, meaning showing guilt. However, we know that in, don't get deflected by that. Look at what happened in this incident. Don't let them try to side track you onto something else and basically engage in character assassination. Well, what we are here to do deal with is, did he assault her or was it the opposite that he was trying to stop the assault? He was trying to get away and she was in a frame of mind where she just was not going to be stopped. She was determined she was going to uh, pursue him and do whatever it is she had to do. Okay, I want to take you down memory lane for a hot minute now, and that is the cinematic conviction. You know, for a guy who may or may not clear this charge in the court, criminal court, he's had a ton of projects taken from him, and this whole conqueror, you know, character may be gone. You know, all these sequels, he may not get those, regardless of what happens in this courtroom. And I remember a young Mark Garagos defending a Winona Ryder uh, who had her shoplifting issues. And that really took a took the boots to her her career. So I think you know a thing or two about cinematic conviction, right? Right. But in this case, remember, and I think it's changed. Winona was what almost twenty five, twenty three, or twenty four years ago. Uh, a lot has changed in terms of the calculation with celebrities. Johnny Depp, and by the way, I always thought I couldn't understand why he went to trial with Amber Heard, and he got the last laugh. He wanted it out, and mind you, that was just fighting over other people's money. In that case, it was a civil case. This is a criminal case, so you, first of all, are fighting for your liberty, and as I always tell the clients, in a criminal case, I can't. you can't let me... You can't have the civil or the career consequences drive that. First and foremost, you deal with your mm. liberty. So that is his first right, concern. Right. He wins, though. A lot of that washes away. 
Ah, uh, well, you, you know what? Way, I'm going to put you on Ashley, the calendar. Look, Ashley, by the way, look at you. You saw the tape. The jurors saw the tape. It kind of flips the script. And uh, a case that looked damning, which is often the case when prosecutors make the charges, once you actually get into the evidence, it it, uh, it yeah, can, flip, yeah. can flip your uh, opinion. I'm, I'm glad you went there, because when you said, look at you, I thought you were going to say you had a big crime and you bounced back. <laughs> I've never had a big crime. Wouldn't that be, Let's wouldn't be, really that be the best? Yeah, look at you, Ashley. You made that comeback from all of that, uh, all of those uh, bad acts of yours. You just made a viral internet clip. Dang it! Uh, I do have you on speed dial, but it is not so that you can represent me in court. It's so that you can be on my show, and you'll be on again because we're going to watch what happens with majors. Uh, Mark Garagos, thank you so much. Appreciate it. I always love being with you. Bye. Well, me too. Okay, coming up, I want you to put yourself in this man's shoes. His mom is violently murdered uh, with a knife. And police think they know who did it, but the grieving son gets his hands on the suspect first. What would you do with that suspect? Were you him? Police uh, soon found that suspect dead and arrested that son, and now that son is facing murder charges. What do you suppose the jury's gonna do? Do you think they're gonna convict him? What would you do if you were on the jury? Story's next. For a place with just about a half million folks, Ada County in Idaho sure does make the news a lot. Like you'll remember six weeks, we followed the triple murder trial of uh, that lady, the doomsday cult mom, Lori Vallow. And then Lori Vallow's husband, Chad Daybell, is going to stand trial there on the same charges in April. But a pair of murders in Ada County from back in March got a whole lot less attention. And I think that's about to change. Uh, the first killing was March 28th, a woman named Michelle Luna. She was stabbed several times in a home in the town of Nampa. And the police had a suspect right away, a man named Jesus Urudia. And they spent the whole night out there trying to track him down, trying to find Jesus Urudia. And they did. They found him the next morning, real early. They did not find him the way they thought they would find him. They found him dead stabbed himself. I mean, he was stabbed. He. He didn't do it to himself, but he himself was stabbed after allegedly having stabbed uh, Michelle the night before. And they found him in a convenience store parking lot. And once again, the police had a suspect right away. It was like, whoa, they felt like they could catch him so quickly, right? Uh, the next suspect is a guy named Raul Cuevas. Uh, but this guy is not your average murder suspect. And he tends to bring this story full circle, or maybe full triangle, because Raul is the 31-year-old son of the original victim, Michelle Luna, the woman stabbed to death on night number one. And as the story goes, police say that Cuevas found his mom's killer before they could get to him. And Cuevas did not trust that the system would give his mom the justice that he believed she deserved. Can we be frank for a minute? Hasn't this crossed your mind at some point? Like, what would you do if someone went after your mom, especially like that? How many times have we heard a victim's parent or sibling say, just give me five minutes alone in the room with the guy? But tonight, 
Cuevas, the son, is facing a first-degree murder charge, and eventually Ada County jurors are going to have to decide what to do with him and what to do with that charge. And little-known fact, sometimes juries decide to put aside the law, and sometimes they just decide to go with their gut. There's even a name for it. It's called jury nullification. And that brings me to Sky Lazaro. She's a criminal defense attorney who has tried uh, over 100 jury trials throughout her career, ranging from misdemeanors to homicide. Sky, it's great to have you back. How common is jury nullification? People just saying, I don't care if he's guilty or not. I'm not going to say guilty. Good to see you, Ashley, and thanks for having me. I don't think it's as common as we think it is. When I actually did some research on it and said about three to four percent of cases result in jury nullification. I think we see it more in drug-related offenses than we see it uh, in cases of, you know, vigilante justice or something along those lines like we have here. So I always want to know what the stats are, but the, you can't because the truth of the matter is jury deliberations are secret. The judge can't be in there. The bailiff can't be in there. They can't put a, a ring camera in there. Like no one's allowed to know. So how do we find out? And if we find out, can those jurors be prosecuted? It, that's really interesting. I think anyone who tries cases wants to be a fly on the wall and during jury del, any del, jury deliberation um, to see, you know, what works and what doesn't work and what they're thinking. Most of the time, we never know. You know, most of these cases that uh, they say were a result of jury nullification, we don't know if the jury just came to a different conclusion or if they really said, you know, we think that the evidence is, supports the elements of the crime and, you know, doesn't matter to us. We're going to disregard it. Um, but the truth is, most of the time, nobody ever says that. They don't come out and do it. There are some cases where uh, people have come forward and they have been charged with things such as jury tampering or obstruction or some different things. It doesn't look like many of those cases have been very successful. Most of them have either been turned over, turned over on appeal or dismissed summarily somewhere along the way in the process. I mean, you feel like poor jurors, right? It stinks to get your jury summons and then to have to put your side and put aside your life and do all this and then get get in trouble for not mm -hmm. doing it maybe the right way. I, I get it. Um, I do want to ask you this, though. Do defense attorneys play to the possibility that they could get a jury to nullify? I know they're not supposed to, but could they get right. inside their Absolutely. head and say the same I mean, thing that I did, which was what yeah. would you do if you were alone in a Absolutely. room with a guy, you know? Absolutely. When I read this, I actually thought, if this happened to me, there's a possibility, like, my son might consider this for a moment, right? I mean, I think everybody thinks that. Um, and, you know, parents or siblings or uh, whatever, especially every advocate. I mean, if you're, if, you're a juror, if you're a trial lawyer, you're in there advocating for your client. Um, and so you do want to appeal to people's sort of sense of sympathy or ability to maybe uh, – you know, empathize with your client or, or identify with them a little bit. Obviously, you can't go so far, you know, as, you know, we call it the golden rule. You can't break it and, and say, you know, you put, put, them in your, put yourself in their shoes. You know, you can't say those types of things. But, of course, you want to appeal to people's sympathies. In a lot of cases like this one, it seems like the facts are really bad and really against you. And, you know, that's what you have as an advocate is, you, you know, trying to convince people that, Either they didn't do it or they, they did it for a justified reason, or even if they did, you should let them go anyway. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I was trying to think of other words for put yourself in um, 
in, in his shoes. And I, I can't think of any, but I'm sure that there are very clever uh, defense attorneys out there. Sky, it's great to right. have you. Thank you for doing that. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Ashley. Good to see you. You too. We'll see you again. Okay, before I go to break, though, I do have another uh, update in a big case. Just days after her son, Ethan Crumbly, was sentenced to life without parole for killing four of his classmates in Michigan, uh, Jennifer Crumbly, the mom, got some good news in her case. And you'll remember that she and her husband are both charged with manslaughter for, like, allegedly paving the way for their son's school massacre by buying him the gun and ignoring all the warning signs. Um, Among other things, the judge in the case has agreed to keep evidence out of her case, evidence that her son liked to torture and kill birds, even keeping a bird's head in a jar under his bed. Judge also has decided to exclude evidence of Jennifer Crumbly's alleged extramarital affairs. Super interesting case, and we're going to continue to watch that, though. Finally, and we always talk about it, should the parents be held accountable when a child does that? Well, there you go. There, there's a case, and it hasn't played out yet. Coming up, uh, what do a chocolate farmer and a Jurassic Park and a murder in paradise all have in common? There is no punchline to this because all of those things factor into a super weird case that happened down in the beautiful Caribbean. And tonight, two American citizens are sitting in jail. They're down there and they are charged with murder and they're charged with burning the corpses of the couple next door. There are some eye-popping details in this case coming up next. disclosure, I am not a grandmother. However, I just became a great aunt a few weeks ago. Happy birthday, Harper. Um, For the record, having great in your title sounds nice, but it just makes you feel super old. And speaking of grandparents, there is some news tonight about Vili Folau, that Vili Folau, the young man who fathered a baby when he was in the sixth grade with his teacher, Mary Kay Letourneau. It was back in 1997, and I'd like you to let these words wash over you. Vili Folau, at 40 years old, is about to become a grandfather. That's right. The second oldest daughter of Mary Kay Letourneau and Vili Folau is due to give birth uh, pretty soon. And that makes Vili a very young grandfather. To be fair, his whole life he's been a very young everything, right? Um, Here are Vili's two daughters back in August making the announcement on Instagram. That is um, 25-year-old Georgia, who's standing, and her big sister, Audrey, 26 years old, who's, like, excited about the baby there. Um, Their dad was the father of two by the age of 15, while their mother, Mary Kay, was serving a seven-year sentence in prison for child rape. They got married when she was released, but they split up 12 years later. Mary Kay died of cancer in July of 2020. By the way, Billy has since become a father again as well. Another daughter born 13 months ago. That's it for us. Cuomo is next. Hey, everybody. I'm Chris Cuomo. It's Wednesday. We're live and we have a lot of breaking news. So what do you say? Let's get after it. First, today, very high profile. Senators called out the House and the Pentagon for keeping UFO secrets from Congress. So what did we hear? Senator Chuck Schumer, right, leader of the Democrats, says that violates the law and 
talking to a Republican colleague, they pointed fingers at who is stopping us from knowing more. We're going to stay on it. Then, just moments ago, in another straight line party vote, that's a problem. Here we go again. The House is launching an impeachment inquiry of a president. What does that mean? More hearings to come. They'll say they get more powers, so they're going to get deeper and they're going to give you the real stuff. But the criticism remains what it has always been. Is this a crime in search of proof? On the same day, Biden's son, Hunter, refuses to sit in a closed meeting session with Congress. Oh, but he had to. Subpoenas have to be fought to be avoided. But a closed meeting session with Congress is required nowhere in the law. Bill O'Reilly is here. He has a hot take. And from one move by Congress that seems to be all about their own agenda to a move that reflects your own, I think. You tell me. The House just passed a resolution condemning testimony by university presidents over anti-Semitism. That includes Harvard President Claudine Gay, who refused to step down. And in fact, they refused to ask her to step down. Why wasn't she forced like the head of UPenn? We have two professors with two very different takes. We'll debate. Plus, could be the biggest news of the day if your name is Dusty. Has the wall of shame around taking Ozempic been broken? Oprah Winfrey, the celebrity and all celebrities, like the most influential person ever, has admitted she owes her new svelte figure to a powerful weight loss drug. But do the rewards outweigh the risks? We've got a doctor with some data that you want to know. Now, I got good news, okay? Last night, we did a story was a little dicey. People weren't sure we could do it because there was going to be a lot of cursing and Dusty and I didn't give a damn. And we were right. Why? Balin Dupree has gone viral and for good reason. We love giving a platform for her to fight the stigma of having Tourette syndrome. Too many are mean and judgy. People have shamed her and, and recorded her because she has unusual tics. You know what Tourette syndrome is. Her tics are like phrases, they're repeated, and they're often vulgar, okay? So Balin decided I'm not going to be held hostage uh, by other people's thoughts about me and judgments about me. She takes the TikTok to live her truth. She now has 9 million followers. She is getting paid for what some see as a problem. She is putting purpose to her pain. And I love all the coverage is getting. Uh, it is getting. And the coverage shows us something. Dusty, put up a couple of the headlines. 